Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to. Because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Two and a half million people, each doing the Beachbody program that fits our own goals. Over 80 to choose from. Some that take just 20 minutes a day. Nutrition plans that teach you how to eat healthy and still enjoy food. What we all have in common is we know it's not easy. So we help each other. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. That's why I'm inviting you to try our amazing Beachbody fitness and nutrition programs. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. week that saw Nicholas Witchell fluff his lines, Killing Eve won all the BAFTAs, and Louisa finally kissed Spiro in the Durrells, this is Series Linked. I'm Emma Bullymore from the TV Times, and this is Mark Jeffries from The Mirror. Hiya, Jeffers. Hey, how's it going? Good, thank you. Well, on this week's episode of the podcast dedicated to everything on the box that's both on and in demand, Jay Comfrey joins us ahead of the FA Cup final weekend. We'll tell you about some big upcoming dramas worth a watch. And Taskmaster's Alex Horn chooses his box set to watch before you die. You're listening to Series Linked, the podcast for TV fans by TV fans. How are you doing, Jeffers? Yeah, I'm really good. Yourself? Yeah, good, thank you. Loads of good drama on it again. Like, it just doesn't stop. It used to be that in awesome season, that's when all the big stuff came. Now it's all year round. I love it. I think we could have picked maybe even three or four this week. So we're going with two, aren't we? And then we're going to maybe have some more next week. But yeah, there's, there's lots to choose from. Well, let's start with Years and Years, which is Russell T Davies' new big sort of epic family drama. Tell us a bit about it. It's um, a six-parter. Starts on Tuesday, nine o'clock. And it's sort of Russell's look into the future, really, in, in sort of a slightly negative way, really. It taps into a lot of concerns I've got, I think, both political problems, sort of people's obsession with social media and how they look, but also, I guess, a slight fear that everything's going to go really wrong. And it starts sort of in present times. It's all about one family. And then it sort of throws you forward years and years. And, and it's sort of how things go wrong. Without spoiling it too much, Trump's still in power Politically here, it's looking pretty dark. There's a lot of problems with immigration and just about sort of the world getting worse than it is now and, and how a family sort of copes with it. But it's done in Russell's own style. There's sort of romance in there. There's arguments. There's a bit of politics. I think it's a really strong open episode. There's lots of sort of unanswered questions. And yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes after the first episode. What did you make of it? Yeah, I really loved it. It's like a dystopian future, but it feels possible because it's rooted in everything we know alexander armstrong's on there hosting pointless there's a bit of question time emma thompson is in it i mean what more reason do you need to watch a drama she's playing kind of katie hopkins style political commentator who is getting more and more popular and that's getting more and more dangerous um she's brilliant in it as you would expect russell said that he wanted to cast an unknown and then emma thompson was was suggesting (laughs) he's like do you know what that's fine I'll, i'll deal with that um and it's, it's really novel and new. And what I like about it, again, Russell was saying that 
He was inspired partly by cold feet. You know, not everything has to be a crime drama. If you have a family at the heart of it or real relationships, real people and that kind of warmth at the heart of it, I think it turns a sort of dry political drama into something that you can really get hooked on. I thought it was really fresh, really different. I really enjoyed it. I should also fill in a few blanks, I suppose. It's mainly around the Lions family. There's Russell Tovey in there, Rory Kinnear. Emma Thompson, as you say, is playing Vivian Rook, this kind of... Female Farage almost, maybe. I don't know if that's that's quite right, but that's sort of ilk and, and Katie Hopkins maybe mixed with Farage. And uh, yeah, it, it pans forward and we end up in sort of London 2024, also the North as well. And it, the Lions family and it's sort of how they are coping with the future. And yeah, there's lots of different elements. There's children with their own issues with social media in the family. There's a gay couple going through problems. And so there's both the sort of human element, I guess, and the political element. I, I think it's, it's really interesting, yeah. Because there's also big stuff, I don't want to spoil it, but big things that you've heard about in the news and thought, oh my goodness, what if that happens? And then it tells you, well, what if it does happen? How would a normal family react to that? And it's, I think it's things that haven't really been televised before. So that is brilliant. Let's move on to the other really big drama this week, starring the man of the moment, Stephen Graham. This is The Virtues, Shane Meadows' new project. Um, it starts on Channel 4. What can you tell us about it, Jeffers? Well, yeah, there's only really one major character you need to know about in this, and that is Stephen Graham's character. He's playing Joseph. He's sort of a recovering alcoholic. He's based in Sheffield, I think. He seems quite down on his luck, as per for sort of Shane's stuff, really. But it's a very interesting and feels very realistic portrayal of this guy. Yeah, he's clearly had relationships that haven't worked out. He's got a child, which he's no longer sort of with. His partner's with someone else. And um, it, it sort of opens with him in this not a particularly nice life, Things are about to change for him as well without giving too much away, but things, are, I suppose, are about to get worse. And it sort of kicks off where he's going to go next or where he's going to try and change his life. Basically, everything starts to go wrong. And it's quite a grim watch to start with, but it does feel quite realistic. And I can sort of imagine people being in this situation. And, and I think what we're going to see in future episodes is he's going to go to Ireland and he's going to try and look back on his childhood, which also sounds like that might be quite flawed and quite a difficult upbringing as well. So it is, it's not an easy watch, a bit like when we were talking about Chernobyl last week. It's tricky, but it's very powerfully done. Some of the scenes just feel very, very genuine, as, as they always do with Shane. And, and it, it is compelling. And, and Stephen Graham, once again, is a great character. Yeah, because he's playing a dad who's, you know, from a broken family and he's, you know, upset that he doesn't see his kid enough. And we've seen that a lot on TV, quite honestly. And you become, maybe it's me being really harsh because I don't have kids, but you become a bit immune to it. And you're like, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that emotion before. But, oh my goodness, like, it really kind of gets you right there. You know, his performance is so brilliant, just as you would expect from Stephen Graham. And it, it really hooks you from the beginning. But actually, like you say, I don't really think the drama is... The drama feels like it's going to be quite disconnected to episode one in a way because when you watch the trailer, it's about what happens after that. That's just kind of setting the scene, really, but it really just gets you on side with that character. Yeah, it's a four-parter, and we've, I've only seen part one myself, and like you say, it really does feel like it's set in the scene and we're promised this sort of trip back to Ireland and a look back to his childhood and perhaps a bit of an explanation as to why he is the way he is, the character, because there's obviously a lot of problems. He seems quite a problematic person. Like you say, he's from a broken home. He things in his, his own relationships aren't haven't worked out well and I wonder if that's partly due to what's gone on before so I think as it goes on you're going to learn a lot more the first episode is very much setting up showing you what this type of person he is and and why he's sort of um, down on his luck as well I suppose because there's all this kind of these religious references through episode one you don't really understand unless I was totally missing something but I didn't really understand what that's about I guess that's also setting the scene 
Yeah, I'm guessing maybe his education was involved some sort of religion, or hopefully not. But I'm wondering if they, you know, his childhood, there's some sort of abuse and that type of thing. That that would be my guess from watching the first episode. But I don't think that's spoiling a great deal. The first episode is very much about sort of his life in Sheffield, if you like, and you sort of watch it get worse, really. But yeah, I don't, I don't want to sort of talk it down in sort of a negative way too much. It, it's very sort of compelling and very realistic and. It, there's some great music as well. PJ Harvey's provided some of the soundtrack for Shane. He's very into his music, and I think the music works really well. It's, it's, yeah, it's very compelling to watch. So this weekend, a big deal if you're a football fan. It's a sporting and a telly tradition in the form of the FA Cup final. BT Sport is going to have live coverage and earlier in the week we spoke to Jake Humphrey about going up against the BBC, covering difficult sporting news stories and of course what he likes to watch on telly. So here he is, this is Jake Humphrey. How do you feel ahead of these kind of big, big events? Scared? Fine? You know Matthew Side wrote that book, 10,000 Hours. I sort of live by that mantra, really, that I've done this for long enough that I shouldn't really get too nervous. The best thing for me was my years on Children's BBC because I don't think that there is the opportunity now like it was then. But I remember I was one of the launch presenters for the CBBC channel in February 2001, which makes me feel super old. (laughs) I keep getting these people in the street talk to me and they're like, oh, yeah, I used to watch you on kids' telly and now they're like 22. I'm like... That's disturbing. Um, That is very disturbing. We used to do a shift, right, 7am till 7pm with an hour off for lunch on Children's BBC. And if you do live telly for for that many hours, and I did it for about nine years, you just get so used to being cued, going live, hearing 321 in your earpiece, that it kind of gives you that serenity that even when you're at Wembley, and we sort of like to push the boundaries a bit with our FA Cup final coverage, so it's not really like the rest of the stuff we do. Um, We'll walk out onto the pitch in the centre circle if we've got... A Man City or a Watford legend will walk down to that end of the ground where their fans are and it'll be loud and it's all kicking off and you're hearing sort of seven or eight voices down your earpiece and you're still trying to make sure the narrative and the story is good and get to the ad break and all the sort of technical stuff that you have to do as a, as a presenter. But because of those hours and hours and hours of children's BBC, it kind of helps. Because sports people are kind of famously not the most verbose in interviews. Sometimes you have to really work to get stuff out of them. Yeah. You must know all the tricks by now to, to get them to talk properly. You know, the sort of we, we're very lucky we have a BT Sport Winnebago. And people think, oh, that's just there so that these overpaid prima donna ex-footballers can have a cup of tea and put their feet up. But for me, that is the most important part of the day. So let's say that we're working with either a pundit that we've not worked with before or someone that's only done a couple of games with us. I will try really early on just to have what they think is a natural conversation about how they're doing, what they've been watching in terms of football, their experience of the game. Because I'm then thinking, what kind of a pundit are you? Because you've got the sort of what I would call the visceral pundits who are all about emotion. Someone like Ian Wright. You don't, you know, Ian Wright, of course, tactically knows the game inside out. But if you really want the magic from Ian Wright, talk to him about the emotion of walking out at Highbury, scoring goals playing for England, your chest bursting with pride when you put on the three lines badge. That's the stuff to talk about with him. At the other end of the spectrum, Owen Hargreaves, when you talk about the emotional stuff, despite the fact that he's been there, he finds it hard to say anything other than, well, yeah, you know, it was fun. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but you won a Champions League at 18. How was that? Oh, I can't really uh, remember much. <laughs> then when I say to him, 
what's the best way to Man United to line up today? Off he goes. Oh, three at the back, five across the midfield, only one up top, move the ball fast, get the fullback towards all this really technical stuff, and he comes to life. So it's about working out which pundit delivers what, and that's how you sort of get the best out of them, I think. It's quite an unusual situation, I guess, with the FA Cup final because you are sort of head to head. Yeah. Which doesn't really happen in football very often. Yeah, we're not really head to head, let's be honest. We're sort of head to toe. <laughs> but everyone watches on the BBC, you know, many millions of people. And I suppose we will get, by our sort of standards, a relatively small audience. You know, it's not like Europa League or the Premier League games we have or the Champions League where it's only on our channel. But actually, I quite like that because we just have a bit more fun with it. You know, we do stuff that others wouldn't and we're on the pitch at full time and it feels a bit freer. But at the same time, you get that sense of event. So there's not a different challenge in that sense or it's more to, like you say, to maybe make it different or yeah. you've got a pretty good rep anyway in terms of how you present the games. It's about trying to get people to watch you because of that. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, we just do our thing really. And I think that I always wanted when I first arrived at BT Sport, I didn't want the calling card of our channel to be big screens with lines and circles and the sort of super techie side of the game. I wanted it to be about the emotion of football and the sense of event and the sense of occasion. And I totally get that for some football fans, that's not what they like. But I think that that is what we had to be. And I think we've done that. I think that we we have a personality on BT and we let our pundits and our presenters do stuff that maybe they're not free enough to do on other channels. And if you're one of the people that wants to come and watch it with us, then then fantastic. But, you know, we're totally aware that that's it's a big day for the BBC and Gary Lineker. And you, and you present, <laughs> you only really present live, Jake, to yeah. be honest. Um, like, does stuff ever go wrong? Have you ever, how's, oh, how's the season been for yeah, you? Yeah, loads. I have to say less so these days because the technology now is so good. But certainly in sort of my previous life when I was at the BBC, probably the biggest thing I've ever done was when William and Kate got married and... I was sort of the up-and-coming BBC boy at that time. I'd done two years of Formula One. And, and at that time, I was doing, like, the one show and I was doing pilots for sort of Saturday night entertainment shows at the BBC and all this sort of stuff. And they were looking for a role for me on that royal wedding. And they, I remember having a conversation where they said, look, obviously, Hugh Edwards is, you know, doing the Hugh thing. So I'm not going to be doing that, let's be frank. <laughs> they said, would you like to be down with the royals on the mall or whatever? And I was like, oh, is there something, a, you know, that's fine, but is there something a, a bit more me? And they said, well, they are going to fly the Lancaster bomber over the top of Buckingham Palace. So you could do that if you wanted to. And I was like, what, broadcast live from a Lancaster? And like, this is like the, one of the most iconic historic RAF airplanes, right? There's only a couple of them left flying in the world. And if you're an airplane geek, like that is the thing to fly on a Lank. It's like at the top of the list, basically. So I was like, yeah, brilliant, let's do that. I remember arriving at the RAF base on the morning. I think it was Coningsby in Lincolnshire. We arrived on the morning of the Royal Wedding at like five, six o'clock in the morning, a really misty morning, and we went into this briefing with the RAF. And it sort of became clear pretty quickly, quite rightly, that the main aim for the RAF lot was just to be over the mall at the very moment they come out on the balcony and they had it to the second. There was no other, there was no other issue for them. That was all they had to do. So it was me and just a couple of technical people were responsible for the broadcast side of things. And I was getting pretty nervous already. But then I put my flying suit on because I had to wear that. And I came out waiting for the producer to come out. And he came out in jeans and a T-shirt. And his name was Tom. I said, Tom, why you can't go on the plane in like, jeans and a T-shirt? And he went, oh, uh, they just said there's not enough room for me on the plane. So I was like, right, so who's, gonna, who's on the plane? They said, well, just you. Oh, my so God. I was like, right. So then I, I was like, right, tell me exactly what's going to happen then. He said, you'll take off and you won't hear anything. 
And then eventually when you get near enough to London for the signal to work, you'll start to hear the program in your ear and you'll hear them and it'll all be fine. I was like, oh my days, wow. okay. And so planes we, are noisy, right? I mean, this, this is going to be... This plane particularly, and also it looks huge, but it was like a tunnel. I had to crawl through to move to the various places. So this plane takes off, great rumbling old thing. We get up, we've got um, a Spitfire, you know, sort of right on our tail. It's the most magical thing ever. And I had this tiny cramped space to sit in. I was sitting in this space and I, I was waiting to hear something down my earpiece and I just didn't hear anything. And a bit of time went by and I was looking at my watch. I was thinking, we're definitely getting close. And then I remember looking out of one of these tiny, tiny cramped windows on this plane. And we were over the Olympic Park, which they were obviously building at the time for 2012. And I was like, right, we are close. <laughs> and I've not heard a thing. So I sacked off the whole waiting for someone to speak to me. And I clambered through this plane, banging around. Well aware, by the way, this was on what they call the world feed. So every country in the world watching the Royal Wedding was going to see no. this. Climbed through. And there was a camera the size of this microphone just strapped on the inside of this plane. And I looked at the camera and I said, listen, guys, I don't hear anything. I don't know if you can hear me or see me or what, but I know we're getting close. I'm just going to deliver the link, okay? And then I paused for a couple of seconds and I was hoping to go a bit techie for a sec that the guys in what we call EVS who record all the feeds coming, I was hoping they were going to see it, go, oh, bloody hell, he's doing his thing. Hit record. Two minutes later, they play it out. I start talking and I see this guy holding his hand up with a white glove and I'm thinking, hold on, maybe he knows something I don't. So I stop and look at him. And then I realise he's signalling to the guy behind me, so I think, okay, fine, and start the link again, at which point it goes... And I was like, what? And we'd gone over the mall, and we were starting the lift afterwards. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. And all the way back, because they'd also agreed to do, which is lovely, all these people had written in to say, on your way back from the royal wedding, can you do a fly-past over our street party, over our village fete, celebrating the royal wedding? And that was magical. I get goosebumps thinking about that, because you'd fly along, and I hear them going, anyone see a party? Anyone see some trestle tables? Well, oh, yeah, there they are. Okay, there they are. Right, line up, in we go. Then they'd go in and do a fly-past, and all these little villages were... It was the most, like, Little England sort of thing oh. ever. It was beautiful. But all the time, at the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, this is like... That was my moment, man. So what happened? None of it went out. So when I stood in front of the camera... They'd seen me and gone live. So I had gone live to the world, to billions of people, started, stopped, and they cut off me. And then all, I landed and I had my mate, Tom, or the producer, he was like, he was a mate. Uh, he went, what happened? And I said, I don't know. I couldn't hear anything. I started and stopped and then we'd, we, we'd done. And all the guys from the RAF were saying the same thing, like, because it was a big moment for them as well, you know, live inside the Lancaster. And uh, I got on the train home I, Tom drove me to like some train station in Lincolnshire and I got on the pl- on the train all like deflated to get the train back to Richmond where I lived at the time and these people all climbed on all like drunk with their hats on and they went are you the geezer that threw up on that plane <laughs> were you air sick <laughs> and I was like no I wasn't air sick and then the next day I, I was so honestly that was my low point in my, I would say that's a low point in my career went out for lunch with my wife and we having this lovely pasta she took me out to some nice restaurant to cheer me up just about to start eating, and this guy just leant over from the next table and went, ah, can I just ask what went wrong yesterday? Oh, no. no. And I just couldn't escape this. It was awful. So, yeah, it's the only way is up from there, isn't it? If it had worked, it would have been, what a moment to tell my kids, that's me on a yeah. Lancaster bomber over the Buckingham Palace when the future King of England got married. But as it is, there's sort of a grainy footage of me starting to speak. And I do actually look like I'm about to be sick. It's all... <laughs> 
know. Maybe you should have been on the mall after all. Should have been on the mall. Should have been chatting to people that were sitting at their little chairs at four o'clock in the morning waiting for the royals to come by. On a more positive note, though, you've dealt with some really difficult stuff in the past sort of year on BT. Mm. I don't know how much you want to go into talking about it, but obviously Glenn yeah. was very ill on over the Leicester mm. helicopter crash. Proper sort of serious news stories and stuff, and you, you've yeah. dealt with all that really well, I think. Yeah. What's your memories of those things? I definitely learned a lot when I did Formula One. I kind of felt, I was 28 when I got that Formula One job and felt I was ready to do it because that sort of innocence of relative youth, certainly youth in terms of that kind of TV programme. So I was like, Formula One, no problem. And then in that first season, Felipe Massa got hit in the head with a, a part from the back of a car in front of him. And he was really badly injured. And that was a huge wake-up call to me because I didn't really know how to deal with that. And we had one of our pundits, Eddie Jordan, was kind of hearing things on the grapevine and then was saying them live on the BBC, which is like a huge no-no, really. So I think from that moment onwards, I had a really good conversation with the producer. And he said to me, um, just don't guess, man. It's not your job to deliver gossip and rumour. It's your job just to tell the facts. So obviously that was a dark day already because of the news that Glenn had his heart attack at BT Sports Studios. We weren't there. We were obviously travelling to the Leicester game. So the first I knew of that was when the producer for our 5.30 kickoff called me into the makeup room at Leicester. I said, look, just to let you know that Glenn has you know, had a really serious heart attack. And we're not sure what's going on, but show that they were planning straight afterwards, which was our sort of school, football results service. They decided not to go on air with that because he was a guest for that. And the only thing that he said to me was as he was leaving the studio, the producer had said on a scale of one to ten, how serious is this? And they'd say, they said to him, this is a nine or a ten. And so we knew there wasn't just Glenn being a little bit ill, he was going to be fine. This, at that point, it was really serious. And then we went on air and obviously we were giving updates about Glenn's condition and things were starting to look a bit better. And then we do a show called Premier League Tonight after each Premier League match, or we did until we ended this season. And they, we were due to go to an ad break, and I remember the producer saying to me in a really kind of serious tone, and it was already a, a sombre show anyway, we weren't having the usual laughs we have for obvious reasons, but he just said, uh, Jake, get to the ad break immediately, please, um, and I'll tell you more when you get to the break. So I naturally fear the worst at that point, get to the break, and then... He tells me the, the, the Leicester helicopter's gone now because we'd just seen it taken off live on air and it was, we were actually sort of having a joke and a laugh about it. I was saying something like, um, you know, live on air, this is where you consider your life choices when you turn around and you see a billionaire climbing in a helicopter at the Premier League ground he owns. Because to us it was such a regular thing, you know, we saw that happen all the time and it sort of became almost part of that programme after, we after the game had finished. We'd often, we'd always see it land and take off. And it didn't really become apparent quite what had happened until one of our security guys then burst into the back of the studio and he he said, the helicopter's literally just gone down outside. So I've sort of in my head thought, like a field five or six miles away and everyone will be okay. And it turned out that it had gone down in the car park. And it also became quite apparent to us very quickly that people hadn't got out of it. But it's not my job to say that on air, is it? You know, the family and friends of the people on the helicopter, the, the players at Leicester, they were all at the stadium still, many of them would have been watching our broadcast still. So I was not the person to deliver that. So it just became about sharing the information in the best way that we could, without any guessing, nothing salacious. And I think the thing that I'm probably the happiest about was that the sort of natural inclination for all of the pundits was just to talk about what brilliant owners the Leicester City owners are, because we talk a lot about bad owners in football, but they kind of... Um, 
they really are loved in that city and they understood Leicester, they understood the club and the city, they'd invested millions of pounds in the infrastructure, in hospitals and schools. They were good owners, a good guy, you know, a really giving, generous, kind, loving owner of a football club. We'd all want that owner at our football club. So I was pleased that we spoke about that actually because it was the, it was the right thing to discuss at that time and obviously then it became apparent um, that he was on the plane along with other people. So, yeah, not what you want to do, obviously, and uh, you just can't prepare for that sort of thing, I don't think. You just don't expect it. You, t- you know, I'm a football presenter. I'm, I'm there to talk about goals and tackles and things like that. But, it's a, again, it's a reminder that you never know what you're going to be dealing with. You know, we've seen many tragedies at football matches over the years and we don't want to see them, but you have to certainly be ready, yeah. So when you were starting out in kids' TV presenting, did you always want to make that step into the sports world? I wanted sport to be part of my career, I'd say, but I never, I don't think I ever thought I'm just going to be a sports presenter, you know. But you can't plan too much in this industry. You know, you really don't know quite where your career is going to take you. So I did love Des Lynham. I mean, I will, I will tell you that I was always obsessed about Des Lynham. What I always love and do love was... Um, big events big events you know so whether it is a royal wedding or you know I was hosting sports personality of the year with Sue Barker and Gary Lineker that was a real sort of high point for me I did four of those they were amazing and then the football's the same you know you're walking out in front of 60 70,000 people and you're responsible for transmitting that to people at home that is what I love it's the event that I really enjoy and I would whether it's sport or whether it's something totally random the big event feel is what is what gets my juices flowing but I had a meeting at, B- at the BBC with one of the B- BBC sport people while I was on kids' telly. And they basically said to me, listen, you're not a journalist and you're not an ex-sports person. And the exact words that we used were, we don't employ people like you. And I was like, wow, okay. So do you feel quite crushed at that point? Yeah, definitely, yeah. I sort of felt, I wasn't sure where to go. Because actually the most competitive place I've ever worked is, is children's BBC. People think it's all sweetness and light, but my goodness, everyone's 20, 21, they've arrived in London, they want to be the next thing, they want to break out from that mould, they want to be the Philip Schofields and the Anton Decks, they want to get spotted, they want to be on Saturday Night Telly. Jeez, it's catty, man, <laughs> really catty. Where I've worked since, I'm now 40, you know, I'm kind of ambitious, but not like I was then. You know, that was about, I want to be the successful one, and everyone was the same. So it was, a, it was an interesting time, but I, I wanted to move on and so I had that meeting and yeah I felt definitely crushed and then I just said to the head of football at the time just let me do something to show you that I'll put the work in and so I used to travel around with a little ISDN kit to football matches around the country just plugging it in and delivering the stuff you know little 20 second match reports on final score and stuff and that led to doing football focus that led to hosting match of the day Um, and then that led to being offered the Formula One job I was in the right place at the right time for that though because they were looking to make BBC Sport a bit younger and a bit a bit funkier. And we always ask our guests about the TV they like to watch when they have a moment. Your choice quite surprising, I hear, what you like to oh, see. Oh, right, watch. yeah. <laughs> Gardener's World. <laughs> I did not have you pegged for that. Well, I suppose I didn't have me pegged for that either, to be quite honest. I was just explaining that I, I get some sort of weird thrill when Monty Donna or whoever goes, now it's time for jobs for the week. And then he goes through, <laughs> like, now is the time to be cutting things back or pruning or planting or whatever. I don't know. I just love how relaxed that show is. You know, the dogs walking around and them just in the peace of the garden. And again, like, I'm just becoming an old man, right? 
a few years ago, I would not have given you this answer. But I live in the countryside now, up in Norfolk, and I've got a nice garden and two little kids, and we've got a new little 10-week-old puppy. And I just love, like, I like... What I love about it is that I can be totally plugged into the sort of creative media world like you know we're recording this in the west end there's probably podcasts being recorded in rooms all around us isn't there and everyone's creative and there's a buzz and there's a real dynamic and i can get in the car or get on the train and in a couple of hours i'm standing in my garden talking to barry my gardener about the hydrangeas and that's great for me but yeah, don't tell anyone. Telling Barry what you learnt on garden as well. Exactly. What he should be doing. Annoying Barry by saying, are you, uh, are you cutting back the fruit trees, Barry? <laughs> and he's like, uh, I do know what I'm doing. And then I sort of pretend that I'm involved in the garden by going out for about 10 minutes with my wellies. But then I get cold and wet and mud on my hands and I sort of, I long for a TV studio. <laughs> It sounds like you've got the work-life balance pretty sorted because I, I see you and you're often driving around or mm. bombing around the country for the games. Like you say, you've got two young kids. How do you make it all work? Do you, do you ever get the balance slightly wrong, wish you were at home a bit more? Yeah, I, I think I get the balance right, but that doesn't mean that I get it right. Do you know what I mean? Like, so my rule has always been I will try and get home all the time. So if I'm coming off air in Liverpool after a Champions League night at 11pm, everyone else is off to their hotel room. I would rather hop in the back of a car, try and get a couple of hours sleep across to Norwich so that I might get in at four o'clock in the morning and then I will still get up and do the school run and then I'll go back to bed for a couple of hours. So I'm, I'm always trying to be there. But I think one of the frustrations my wife has sometimes is that if you're going to be there, you've actually got to be there. You know, I probably do spend too much time on my phone looking at social media. I don't have like a sort of, day, I don't have a regular week, so I don't have a day off. So I'll often get home from work. Usually I'm in about one or two o'clock on a Sunday morning. And so Saturdays is a big work day and the kids are at school Monday to Friday. So Sunday is our real only day as a family. So if that Sunday doesn't go right, it's not great because everyone in the family is like, oh, this is our one day to be together and love each other and now we're rowing or whatever. And then Monday starts again. Um, for everyone else, the working week has begun. So my phone is going and I'm getting requests and you know people are doing stuff and, and the work begins. And Harriet's like, sometimes, she's like, I just wish we had a Friday night, Saturday as a family, Sunday as a family. But that's not our life. And you know we have to sort of remind ourselves that we get loads of great stuff. But that's one of the things that perhaps falls by the wayside. But I, I will never forget um, ahead of the final of the Euro 2008, which was one of John Motson's, it was actually his final, major, final commentary of a final, if you know what I mean. And I sat in the bar with him the night before and I said, um, I said, Jesus, John, what a career, man, unbelievable. Is there anything you change? His only answer to that was, I just wish I'd seen my kids a bit more when I was younger because he was so dedicated and so committed to work and so brilliant. And I sort of vowed at that moment when I heard him say that, I'm never going to give that answer. Um, so I do try my very best, but it isn't easy. I bet you're in the good books for getting a puppy, though. So in the good speak. books for getting a puppy, haven't quite reached the John Motson television heights. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you win some, you lose some, right? Is there anything else you feel like that's unfulfilled? We've talked a lot about sport, but is there anything maybe with Whisper you would well like to make a documentary about a particular passion project or anything like, like that? Yeah. Um, have you seen the Have you seen the the Hamilton musical? Yes, love it. Have you seen yeah, it? Yeah. The song, There's a Million Things I Haven't Done. Yeah. I feel like that every day. There's a million things I haven't done. I still want to do loads of different sort of presenting jobs. I would still like to go back to doing stuff like the one show or This Morning, which I was doing before I'd sort of got solely into sport. Documentaries are the thing that I love watching and actually love making. 
So I'm working on a few little ideas for those things at the moment. I sort of, I'm permanently coming up with ideas without necessarily having the time to quite execute them. So something at some point will have to change, I think. I'll maybe have to be brave at one point and just, you know, not have a regular job like I've always had. You know, I've gone from regular work, being, you know, really involved in stuff on a intense level. And maybe one day I'll have to step aside and go, do you know what, I'm just going to have a year where all I do is think about what I'd really like to do and come up with little ideas and bits and pieces. But I don't really feel brave enough to do that yet. Thanks very much to Jake. And you can watch the FA Cup final coverage with Jake on BT Sports this Saturday afternoon. Hello, podcasters. Are you hungry? I am. Well, actually, I always am. That's why I'm doing a new series called Out to Lunch with Jay Rayner, where I take interesting people to eat in a restaurant I reckon they'll like. I've spent my career interviewing over the dinner table. You just find that people relax more when they're being pelted with fine wines and being fed ample food. So in this first series, I'll be breaking bread with a whole bunch of people, including Richard E. Grant. Like a multiple rolling gastronomic orgasm. Mel C, Stanley Tucci, Tracy Ullman and Jamie Dornan. Out to lunch with Jay Rayner. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. You know you don't want to miss an episode. Chernobyl started last week on Sky Atlantic, massive HBO series. And we, we were talking about that on last week's episode. It is a grim subject on paper, but it is also a fantastic drama. So my big question to you this week, Jeffers, is what else sounds depressing on paper, but it's actually pretty decent? Well, first of all, I thought about Blackadder. It's quite a grim subject. Lots of war, lots of death on paper, but it actually was really funny. Obviously, Fourth what, season was amazing. It's up there with the best comedies. But I also wanted to give a shout out to Six Feet Under. Used to love watching that on Channel 4 in the sort of mid-2000s. And that was all set around a funeral home. It was about the Fisher family. Uh, made a great star of Michael C. Hall. Also had Peter Christ. They were the sort of two Fisher brothers. And they were sort of warring. There was lots of relationships in it. But it always had a death in there. Every week a different death, obviously, for the funeral parlour. And they used to even speak to some of the dead bodies. But it was so much more than just being about death. There was lots of relationship struggles, lots of emotion in there. And I just think it was a great watch. And yeah, it wasn't in any way sort of depressing and, and used to be a huge hit. So let's talk about some more telly coming up next week. Talk about depressing things, but this is really important. The BBC are doing a big mental health week next week. And there's two really... I think, incredible documentaries. Nadia, who you'll know from Bake Off and all sorts of cooking shows, she's done a documentary, Anxiety and Me. And in a very similar vein, David Harewood has done Psychosis and Me. I think we need to talk about them together because they're kind of both quite similar in what they're setting out to achieve. Set it up a bit for us, Jeffers. Well, yeah, Nadia Hussein's one is Anxiety and Me, Wednesday, 9 o'clock on BBC One. And that is all about her current issue, really, which is... She really struggles with anxiety and she has done for a number of years. And I think it's only really now she's chosen to address it. She's speaking to her husband about it and saying things that he's not never perhaps heard her say before. And she goes and gets checked out and she also sort of tries to tackle it head on, really. And she also talks about how it's affected her in the past. She's had debilitating sort of panic attacks, even when she's been close to doing sort of public events and that kind of thing. Does look a real problem. I was quite surprised how big a problem it was for her. You remember her winning Bake Off, and this obviously wasn't mentioned. She really does seem crippled at times and almost unable to move or unable to go out. She talks about living in certain places. It's living in Milton Keynes because it's quite a structured sort of grid 
light uh, setup in terms of the roads and stuff. And it really does massively affect us. So I was quite surprised and quite sort of interested as well in terms of how they try and tackle it and, and hopefully off the back of the program she's going to make some progress the david harewood one that's david harewood psychosis of me that's thursday nine o'clock bbc2 it's a slightly different take to the nardi one because he's very much talking in the past really it was it's something that happened to him at the age of 23 he basically had a breakdown and was sanctioned and he did talk about it a couple of years ago on twitter and off the back of that now we're, we're seeing a documentary about it i say it's in the past it still clearly affects him now and during the course of the documentary he does go through what happened all those years ago with, with some people who were there and again learns perhaps new stuff that he didn't know before and maybe it's the first time he's really confronted what happened head on I think he also speaks to his mum about it and says he's, he's rarely brought the subject up in the family after all you know in the last sort of couple of decades I found that one really emotional I can see David is really struggling with it at times almost like he wants the cameras to stop I think and you feel like you're in some quite intimate conversations there, particularly when he's looking back with his two friends who were there when when he was sort of sectioned. It's really brave, I think, of him to talk about. It. He also meets some some other people who are coping with similar things now. It's clearly a, a huge problem, and thankfully, what I've sort of learnt from the documentary was there is help at hand now, and more help perhaps than there would have been in his day. So they're both very serious topics, and they're slightly different, I think, tonally because because obviously David is something that's historic and Nadia's is very much in the present. I just thought they're both so brilliant and so honest and personal. You know, we all like to think now that we're living in an age that is really comfortable with mental health and we're pushing for parity of mental and physical health. And I think people speak a lot more about depression and that's obviously brilliant and a real step forward. When it comes to psychosis, David Herbert, what he says in that documentary is right, that, you know, if you think of someone being psychotic, there are still so many misconceptions around that and that's something terrifying to think about and psychotic is such a dramatic word likewise you know Nadia is a grown woman who finds it really scary to get on a train on her own and she was quite clearly saying that that's quite an embarrassing thing to admit um, because we're not there yet we're not all just really comfortable talking about this stuff and we don't all understand it and those two people with such a profile going on and you know especially David Harewood he looks you know he's handsome and he's fit and he you know he's got this great life and for him to say I was once I once had psychosis I thought was so powerful and to go into such detail and to talk you know bring his family into it the same with Nadia and to be so raw and emotional on camera you know you see Nadia in her therapy sessions and it's a tiny bit set up the way they do it but it's real emotion that she's going through I don't think I've seen anything like that in a documentary anyone being quite so honest quite a long time I'd say two things here. First one with David Harewood, he, this is something that happened in the past. He's a very talented, very successful actor. He doesn't need to do this. You know, this is on BBC Two. It's an hour documentary. It's not going to pay him a fortune. So I think it's a really good thing that he's doing it. It's hopefully going to help a lot of people. So f- first of all, fair play to him. And, well, and to Nadia as well, both in the same situation. You know, that this is not an easy thing to choose to do. You know, you're really laying yourself bare, I think, in doing it. So I think that's really important. And also, these documentaries, they need to be made by... The relevant people, I think sometimes you get a documentary and it feels like an actor or a celebrity has been sort of tagged on the end or something like that. In both these cases, clearly they've suffered from the issues involved and they just feel a really good fit and it feels like a really good thing. These sort of documentaries are, for me anyway, exactly the sort of thing that the BBC should be making. And it's like we were saying about Vicky McClure's Dementia Choir the other exactly day. Exactly the same thing, yeah. Which got quite disappointing ratings, actually, I think. But, it, you know, it was important that it was her story and it meant a lot to her. And that just made that whole documentary sing, I think. That's another thing where people might watch that and it might help someone. They, you know, hopefully some other choirs might be set up. 
maybe Nadia, someone's watching this who's got anxiety problems, who's never mentioned it to their husband or their parents and perhaps watching this, they'll feel that they can talk about it a bit more openly. And even if it helps a handful of people, it'll be worth doing. But I honestly think that these will be a great benefit to hundreds or thousands of people around the country. And just on a slightly lighter note, BBC Two is bringing us the final series of Mum. This is critically acclaimed. Lots of people really like this. This is a Leslie Manville comedy. Jeffers, do you think it's funny? I do, actually. I, I've got to admit, I'm, really, I'm not showing myself up as much of a TV expert this week, but this is series three and I've never seen this before. Lots of people in my office have been telling me to watch it for a long time. And series three is Wednesdays at 10 o'clock, so you could watch Nadia and then you could watch this, which I think might be a good combination because it will provide a bit of light relief. It's a family sitcom. As you say, Leslie Manville is playing Kathy. And what's great about this is it just taps into that awkwardness you have with family members when they're together. The first episode, they're all meeting up for a birthday. And it works in that way that the royal family or all good comedies do work well when there's not that much happening. And it's just it works because of the relationships and the sort of humour that you can imagine that family being a bit like your family or a bit like when you meet up at Christmas or whatever. And I thought it was really good. I watched straight away off the bat, watched another episode and I'm going to go back and watch some of the others. I think they're on iPlayer for another week or so. And I really liked it. Are you a fan? Well, I mean, it's a beautiful, understated performance from Leslie Manville, but I I don't really get the hype because I find the son and the daughter-in-law just really caricatured and over the top. And actually, I thought that particular episode wasn't that dissimilar from an episode of Not Going Out I watched the other week where, you know, there's the posh couple and the not-so-posh couple living together on holiday and isn't it awkward? It's kind of the same thing. It's just that this has got a slightly sort of more polished critically acclaimed gloss over it um, which I know people will hate that comparison but I don't know I just I thought Leslie Manville does stand out and is brilliant and I like that it's not too gag heavy and it's kind of it's it's more subtle but I just those two the the son and the daughter-in-law I find really jarring the daughter-in-law really remind me of the uh, sidekick to the vicar of Dibley yeah but I gather that's been said a thousand times before so apologies for that but whoever said that that is very true and in that sense it is a little bit her character I agree is a little bit over the top I liked um Kathy's sister-in-law who's uh, it's her brother's birthday isn't it I think at, at the first episode and the sister-in-law they've, they've hired this big house and she is one of those really annoying second she's on a second marriage she's got too much money and she's sort of almost like fake posh I think and I thought her character was really good and the way she sort of played up to being almost the owner of this house that they've rented for a week and she was sort of making a big play of having all this stuff. I found that very believable and I've definitely been to some uh, weekends away where there's been some people like that. So I found her really amusing. But as I think you said, Leslie Manville really does carry it. But for me anyway, she definitely carries it enough. I think she's she's brilliant in it and I'll, I'll definitely be watching some more just for her character really. Now it's time once again to add to the list of box sets to watch before you die. Each week, one of our favourite faces from the telly tells us a must-see series. Now last week, it was Emma Willis. She chose Peaky Blinders. And this week, it's the turn of Taskmaster's Alex Horn. Here he is with his choice. Hello there, I'm Alex. And my box set to watch before you die is The Detectorists. Did I ever tell you about the beautiful old battle axe I once found? Yeah, you I married her. Have I done that one for you before? Sorry to interrupt, but are you metal detectors? This is a metal detector. We are metal detectorists. It's the story of Andy and Lance who spend their lives searching for treasure, both in the ground and with the people they love. You're going to discover the Valley of the Kings. In Essex. 
Matchbox car. I mean, who's been playing with cars up here? Would you so the humble, boring button is a very real piece of social history. It's basically the holy grail of treasure hunting. Well, no, the holy grail is the holy grail of treasure hunting. And I love it because it's beautiful, it's touching, and mainly it's very, very funny. Hello. Welcome to the mass ranks of the Debris Metal Detecting Club. I understood there was going to be a talk about buttons. I'll very happily do a recap. No. Please, no. Yes? We were wondering if you'd give us your permission to detect on your land. Fascinating. <laughs> I wish I'd written it myself, but genuinely, just being in their world and knowing their world exists makes me extremely happy. Oh, yes, the metal detectors. Detectorists. So, the detectorists. I, you were saying that you haven't watched many of the progress we're talking about this week. You've not seen this either. I'm a to- total shambles, aren't I? <laughs> um, but I can tell you, it was BBC Four comedy series. It's Mackenzie Crook and Toby Jones. They love metal detecting. Metal detecting, is that a word? Is that the right phrase? They're, det- they're obviously detectorists. Clearly, that's the, what I should have said. And um, they go around Essex, I think, trying to find, presumably trying to find some treasure and stuff. They play Andy and Lance, I think, and they are members of the Danebury Metal Detecting Club. And it's Mackenzie Crook wrote it, right? And he, I remember Toby Jones in an interview saying that Mackenzie said to him, oh, will you look at this script? But you don't have to, but it might not be very good. And he was really sort of modest about it. And Toby Jones was like, yeah, of course I'll look at it. And then they both love it. Toby Jones was saying it's the nicest job and they just have a great time filming it. So I think that there could well be more. And people do love this. People in my office have all been telling me to watch it for a long time. It won a BAFTA in 2015 for scripted comedy. And uh, it's definitely another thing that I need to watch quite quickly to try and become some sort of TV expert at some point. <laughs> and where can you watch it? It's on Amazon Prime at the moment. Fantastic. So thanks very much, Alex, for that recommendation. Taskmaster, which we were discussing on last week's pod, is currently showing on Dave on Wednesday nights at nine o'clock. And you can always catch up on the UK TV player. There'll be another box set to watch before you die next week. We're almost out of time in this week's episode, but as ever, we need to do the best bit of the podcast. We need to look at our EPGs, hazard a guess at what we'll be talking about, not just next week, but also next month and next year. Jeffers, it's your glory moment. Don't let us down. What is happening next week? Next week, I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again. It's Hatton Garden. The reason I want to bring it back up is because it's four parts and they're going to strip it across the week. So this is the one. It's written by Jeff Pope, who's done things like Little Boy Blue, really good writer. And it's Timothy Spall and Kenneth Cranham. And it's all about the uh, April 2015 jewellery heist. And it's really good. starts quite funny. And then I think it's going to get more serious. Also, if you don't like the sound of that, over on Dave, we've got Judge Romesh coming back. That starts June the 22nd. And that's Romesh and his mate Tom Davis messing about a bit in a sort of Judge Rinder kind of way. But it's, it's funnier than that. Brilliant. Next month. Next month, I want to talk about Year of the Rabbit. This is a Channel 4 comedy. It's Matt Berry, who you probably know from Toast to London, IT crowd, that kind of thing. He's the main character. He's playing Detective Inspector Rabbit, a hardened booze hound cop in Victorian London. And he's got loads of really good guest stars for this, likes of Sally Phillips, Keely Halls and Jill Halfpenny. I think it's going to be pretty decent. Fantastic. And next year? Next year, I'm cheating a little bit um, because this is going to be Christmas, but it might go into the new year. I want to talk about a new adaptation of a Christmas classic. It's called A Christmas Carol, and it's going to be the writer behind Peaky Blinders, Stephen Knight. He's working up into a three-part. I think it's going to be really dark and quite edgy, probably quite scary. And uh, you're going to have Guy Pearce playing Ebenezer Scrooge, and Stephen Graham's also in this as well. And of course Charlotte, he is. And, and Charlotte Riley as well. So the lineup is really good. It's not quite next year, but I reckon with the three parts, the last one might be on New Year's Day, so I'm going to get away with it. 
fantastic. I love a bit of Christmas Carol. Right, lots for us to keep an eye on there. But that's all we've got time for this week. This has been the Series Linked podcast. If you've enjoyed it, obviously we hope you've loved it. Please be sure to leave a five-star rating and a review if you would. And make sure you've subscribed as well so that the next episode is ready and waiting for you when it drops next Tuesday. For now, though, see you later. See you next week. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to. Because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Two and a half million people, each doing the Beachbody program that fits our own goals. Over 80 to choose from. Some that take just 20 minutes a day. Nutrition plans that teach you how to eat healthy and still enjoy food. What we all have in common is we know it's not easy, so we help each other. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. That's why I'm inviting you to try our amazing Beachbody fitness and nutrition programs. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.